0: God, our Father, we thank you that you have established your king, the King Jesus, and that we know him and that we have faith in him because you have granted it to us. We pray now that as we look at King David in 2 Samuel, that you would remind us of the Lord Jesus, our king, and that you'd help us to grow more like him and in our faith in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the one thing that every story has in common? Every movie or book or story that's ever been told has one thing in common. What is that one thing that they all share? The one thing that every story ever told shares is a problem. A problem that needs to be solved. A mountain that needs to be moved or a giant that needs to be slayed, Goliath in the story of David. And in many stories and books, there is a common problem. So in many different books, movies, stories told throughout history, there is a common problem that comes up all the time. And the problem is this, that there's no one to carry on the family line. No heir to the throne. No one to inherit the family estate. No one to carry on the family name. And so the main characters work frantically, don't they, to try and make sure. Will the family line pass on? Will the next person in the kingship be from our family, etc., etc.? You can probably think of stories, movies, books now where this happens. And that's one of the things that we've seen in Samuel, isn't it? In the book of 2 Samuel, King Saul and his sons, they're dead. And so what does it mean for Saul's line? What's going to happen? What does it mean for the nation of Israel? And we've seen the last few chapters of 2 Samuel, haven't we? Some great things, some disturbing things, and some downright sometimes funny things. And we've seen civil war, civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And remember, at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul, the anointed king, he died in battle. He fell on his sword. And so, oh, that leaves room for David to take the throne. Simple as that, right? No. Not at all. Just because Saul is dead doesn't mean that things go smoothly for David now. In fact, if you read chapters 2 to 4, you see that for seven and a half years, there was turmoil and civil war in Israel. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 1, and have a look there. It says, The war between the house of Saul and the house of David was, Was long and drawn out, with David growing stronger and the house of Saul becoming weaker. So, this civil war goes on for seven years. And during that time, Saul's household, his family line, gets weaker and weaker. So, first of all, King Saul, he's dead. But then, Abner, Saul's general, takes control. We read about this this week in our gospel teams. And he gets Ishbosheth. It's a funny name, isn't it? I feel for the guys who had to read that just before. Ishbosheth is the last son of Saul. There are no others. And so Abner takes Ishbosheth and makes him king. King over the 11 tribes of Israel, while David is the king over one tribe, Judah. But soon enough, Abner is killed by David's general, Joab. And not long after that, Ishbosheth is killed as well while he's napping and by people from his own tribe. And now, all that's left from Saul's line is a boy named Mephibosheth. That's a good one to get your tongue around. Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. Now, could Mephibosheth take the crown? Could he be the one who takes Saul's kingship upon himself? What's the answer? I hear a murmur, and I think that means no. Why? Why can't Mephibosheth be king of Israel? He's crippled. He had an accident when he was a child. He cannot walk, and he's only 12 years old at this point as well. He cannot lead Israel into battle. He cannot be the king that you needed in a day and age like that. And so now... There is no hope for Saul's line. No one to carry on the family estate. That problem that comes up in so many stories happens here. And so what do they do? What does Israel do? And what, more importantly, what do they need? Well, what they need is a faithful king, isn't it? A king who is after God's own heart, who desires to worship and praise God and lead the nation of Israel in that as well. So, after a seven-year civil war with Judah, what do the 11 tribes do next? How do they solve this problem? No king in the line of Saul. Well, they come to their senses, don't they? So have a look at chapter 5, verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Here we are, your own flesh and blood. Even while Saul was king over us, You were the one who led us out to battle and brought us back. The Lord also said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. The power-hungry leaders of Israel, they're dead and gone. And so the 11 tribes, they make the only smart move left. The elders, they come to David at Hebron and they anoint him king over all 12 tribes. And you can see them coming to their senses, can't you? Look at the reasons they give. Verse 1. We are your flesh and blood. We're family. Why should we shed blood anymore? It makes sense. We want you to lead us and unite us. The second reason is that David has always led them to victory. It makes sense, doesn't it? That you would get the guy who always led them into victory to be your king. Because then that will keep happening. You will have peace, security. Security. You will have victory. Who doesn't want that? It makes sense. And the third reason is really the most important one. So have a look there. Verse 2 at the end. They say, God said that you will be our shepherd. You will be the ruler over all Israel. And so we see Israel starts listening to God again. They come to their senses. God had promised... I will establish David as king. Samuel anointed him all those years ago, and so now all Israel comes together and goes, Bam, David, you are our king. And this is really the point of this whole chapter. David, rec- sorry, Israel recognizes God said he would establish David as king, his anointed one, and look, he's done it. Through all the trouble and difficulty and war, God has been working faithfully to fulfill his promises to David. He's been righteously judging Saul and his household and then raising up and empowering David to be the king that Israel needs. Even Abner, Saul's general, he recognized this a few chapters earlier. Listen to what he says in chapter 3 verse 9. It's on the screen. He says, May God punish Abner and do so severely if I don't do for David What the Lord swore to him, to transfer the kingdom of the house of Saul and establish the throne of David over Israel and Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. So here in chapter 5, God is fulfilling that promise. God swore an oath to David, you will reign over all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, from the top to the bottom, all of it. God promised it. And so that's exactly what he did. God establishes David as king over all Israel, just as he said he would. And let's not let that detail pass us by. It will be very easy to say, okay, cool, David's king. What happens next? Where's the battles? Where's the fun stuff? No, let's stop and reflect for a moment. How good is this? How good is it that we worship and serve a God who keeps his word, whose words and actions are totally trustworthy, who always keeps his promises, who always looks after his people. If you are a Christian, that is the God that you serve, the God who is utterly dependable, totally trustworthy, always reliable. Never failing. Who compares to that? No one. He is the only one who is the immovable rock, the unshakable ground, the person that you can bank your life on knowing that they will never, he will never betray you. Why put your trust in anything else but him? Doesn't he deserve all of our trust, all of our praise? Because he fulfills his promises. Because he kept his word to David and made him king. How good is that? So now David is king. King over all Israel. Kind of. Because there is still some part of Israel that he is not king over. And that's what the next few verses are about. So have a look at verse 6. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites who inhabited the land. The Jebusites had said to David, You'll never get in here. Even the blind and the lame can rebel you. Thinking, David can't get in here. God has established David as king over all Israel. But there is still one city in the region of Judah that the Israelites have never been able to capture. Remember back earlier in the Bible, God gave Israel the promised land. He saved them out of Egypt and put them in the promised land. He kicked out the other nations and Israel had a land flowing with milk and honey. But because Israel did not fully depend on God, they did not trust him, they were sinful, there were just a few nations that Israel did not drive out. God did not give them victory. And so for hundreds of years, the Jebusites had remained in the promised land in Jerusalem. And so David's first action as king over all Israel is to do what? Is to finish what was started so long ago. To claim this part of the promised land, Jerusalem. And to make it the capital city of the nation. But the problem was, No one in Israel had ever been able to defeat them. It was a well-fortified city, strong walls, up on a mountainside, and so they couldn't capture it. This is why David wants it, by the way. He wants a strong, strategic place to rule from. And so you can understand why the Jebusites mock David, can't you? They say, even the blind and the lame can defeat you. Even people with disabilities can defeat you in battle. And they have a point. Israel had, been able, had never been able to defeat the Jebusites before. So why should it be any different with David? Well, the difference this time is God is with David. Listen to how simply the writer puts it in verse 7. Yet David did capture the stronghold of Zion, That is the city of David, Jerusalem. It doesn't even describe the battle, does it? The Jebusites don't stand a chance against David because God is on his side. David seems to so easily defeat the Jebusites. Even though they say to David, even people with disabilities can defeat you. And now, at this point, these verses start to sound a little funny to our modern ears because it sounds like David is discriminating against disabled people, the the blind and the lame. In case you're worried about that, that's not what's going on here. So have a close look with me. At first, it sounds like David's saying, when you go up the water shaft, I want you to attack the blind and the lame first. And at the end of verse 8 it says, the blind and the lame will never enter the house, the temple, or the palace. They're not allowed to keep them out. In case you're worried, that's not what's going on here. What David is saying is that the Jebusites are defying God, defying the anointed king. And so he says, you are as weak in battle as the blind and the lame. Defeating you will be as easy as defeating an army of people who can't fight very well. So David says, the blind and the lame, and then he means the Jebusites. He starts using that as a way of referring to the Jebusites. So when it says the blind and the lame will never enter the house or go in and attack the blind and the lame, he's talking about all the Jebusites. He's saying they are not allowed to enter God's house, the temple, or, God's, or the king's house, the, the palace. Why? Because they've defied God. Because they have defied his anointed king. This is God's judgment on them that they deserve. So David doesn't despise people with disabilities. In fact, later on, David shows incredible love and compassion and mercy on who? Mephibosheth. Saul's grandson, who should be his enemy, but instead he treats him with honor and respect. But that's a side point, because really what we see going on here, and across this whole chapter, is God continuing to establish David as king. God establishes David as king in a strong city, Jerusalem, or Zion, or the city of David, as he renames it. So look at verse 9, and we see it all come together. David took up residence in the stronghold, which he named the city of David. Verse 10, David became more and more powerful, and the Lord of hosts was with him. King Hiram of Tyre sent envoys to David. He also sent cedar logs, carpenters, and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then, this is the key verse, verse 12, Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. God has kept his word, hasn't he? God has fulfilled his promise. God has established David as king over all Israel, and in Jerusalem, Zion, his holy hill. Again, we see that the God that we worship and serve keeps his word. His actions are trustworthy. How good is that? But then, yet again, there is another threat to David and his kingship. Perhaps things won't be smooth sailing for long. Not that there was any sailing happening in Jerusalem. It wasn't on the sea. Because in the last part of the passage, Israel's old enemies, the Philistines, show up again for battle. Have a look at verse 17. We see battle number one. When, David, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they all went in search of David. But he heard about it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines, over here, somehow, David has been established king over all Israel. And they do not like it. This happens in books and movies and stories all the time, doesn't it? When the wrong person inherits the wealth, people conspire to kill that person. Or when the wrong king gets put in power, there's a coup to take him out. This is the same here. The Philistines got rid of Saul, and now they think we need to get rid of David quickly. So they set out looking for him. And they discover he set up his base in Jerusalem. David goes inside for protection, and the Philistines line up for battle just outside Jerusalem in the valley. And then David does something remarkable something that hasn't happened for a long time. Come with me, verse 19. Then David inquired of the Lord, Should I go to war against the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? Here we see David is a man after God's own heart. Instead of taking matters into his own hands, instead of calling on his own strength and the strength of his army... He seeks God's strength. He seeks God's wisdom and God's will. He says, what would you have me do, Lord? Saul had given up on doing this long ago. God had given up trying to speak to Saul long ago. But not David. David is a king after God's own heart. God's chosen king who will listen to him and do his will. So how does the Lord answer? End of verse 19. Go, for I will certainly hand the Philistines over to you. For the last few decades, the Philistines have defeated Israel time and time again. But now, Israel has a faithful king. A king who inquires of God, who seeks his wisdom and strength. And so the battle in verse 20 and 21, it's easy for David. The Philistines are defeated. David is victorious. God is establishing David as king, king even against his enemies. Which is, again, God fulfilling one of his promises. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 18 on the screen. They say, Now take action, because the Lord has spoken concerning David through my servant David. I will save my people Israel from the power of the Philistines and the power of all Israel's enemies. So the Philistines are defeated once. And then in the last part of the passage, there's battle number two. They regroup. They come back, knocking on David's door. Maybe they've got a bigger army this time, or maybe they've learned some lessons from the previous battle. But clearly they haven't because they wouldn't have come to try again if they had learned anything at all. Because what does David do in verse 23? He inquires of the Lord again. He is a faithful, godly king who seeks God's wisdom and strength and says, Lord, what is your will? I will do it. And this time, the king says, sorry, God says, don't go head on. This time, go around the back and surprise them. And he says to David, listen for the sound of rustling leaves in the trees, the sound of marching, because that's what it sounds like. When you hear that sound, when the wind picks up, you know God is fighting your battle for you. You will be victorious because I am with you. God is their king and commander. As long as the anointed king listens to God, he will be successful. Israel will be blessed. And so what does David do? Verse 25. So David did exactly as the Lord commanded. And he struck down the Philistines all the way from Geba to Geza. Yet again, we see God establishes David as king. King over his enemies. He is a faithful and obedient and godly king. The one Israel needs. And so the Lord gives him victory over the Philistines. So across this whole chapter, we see, don't we, God establishes David as king. King over Israel, king in Jerusalem, and king against his enemies. God has done what he promised. As verse 12 says, which we read before, God has established David as king over Israel and has exalted his kingdom. For the sake of his people, Israel. He is faithful to his word. He gives Israel the king that they need. A faithful king who leads them to victory and blessing and security. Remember last Sunday, Phil said that one of his hopes for this series in 2 Samuel is this. That as we look at King David, we would better understand... And more appreciate King Jesus. Because as we look at King David, and as we look beyond this story in 2 Samuel 5, we see God didn't just establish David as king. He did more than that when he established the son of David as king. David is great. David is faithful. But he still falls short of God's glory, doesn't he? In this passage, we see he takes many wives and concubines, which God says the king should not do. So David isn't perfect. But Jesus, the son of David, is. Jesus, the son of David, is the man after God's own heart. The one who says, Father, what is your will? I will do it. He's the king that God's people need. Sinless, always doing his father's will. And so when we get to the New Testament a thousand years later, we see God establish Jesus, the son of David, as king. We see God establish Jesus as king, not over Israel like David, but over all the nations and over all creation. We see God establish Jesus as king, not in Jerusalem, but in heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, sitting at God's right hand with all power and dominion and authority. We see God establish Jesus not as king against the Philistines, but against our greatest enemies, sin and death and Satan. Back in 2 Samuel, God established King David for the sake of his people Israel. Now God has established the son of David, King Jesus, for the sake of his people. Not just Israel, but us, people from all nations, anyone who will come to him in faith. Listen to how Paul puts it at the beginning of his letter to the Romans. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news, that's the gospel which he promised long ago through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, our Lord, who was a descendant of David, a son of David, according to the flesh, and who has been been declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness. We have received grace and apostleship through him, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations on behalf of his name. God has established King Jesus. And how has he done that? By Jesus dying on the cross for us and by raising him up again. Defeating sin and death and Satan once for all. Now he is king reigning in heaven over all people, and over all creation. And then he calls people to respond to him in faith. Trust in him as your king, and you can share in his victory. You can have forgiveness for your sin. You can have eternal life. You can live forever with your king in his kingdom. What amazing news. And so if we were amazed by how God kept his promise and established King David. That's amazing, isn't it? But if we're amazed by that, then how much more should we be amazed? How much more should we be in awe and wonder, full of thankfulness and praise, when we see God has established Jesus as King forever? How much more should we praise God, who keeps his promises, and who has gone above and beyond the promises he made to David? David and given us wonderful, beautiful promises that Jesus will reign and his people will be forgiven and live forever. How much more should we want to live for King Jesus? Putting our faith and trust in him, living to honour him and grow his kingdom, proclaiming his name, growing people as disciples of him. So here in 2 Samuel 5, as we see God established David as king in Israel, in Jerusalem, victorious over his enemies. As we see that, let's be reminded, God has established Jesus as king. King over all people and all creation, raised and seated in heaven, victorious over sin and death and Satan. Let's thank and praise our God that he keeps his promises And gives his people the king that they need. Let's do that now. God our Father, you are an incredibly holy and powerful, generous and gracious God. We praise you for the Lord Jesus, the Son of David, whom you have established as king over all things. Father, we are amazed and in awe at the king that you have put in place, perfect and sinless, suffering and dying for us, rising again to rule from heaven. Father, we pray that you'd help us to worship and praise and bow to him as king, even when life is hard, even when it seems that he is not reigning. Lord, help us to know he is king. And that you keep your word and look after your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.